This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. How should Christians, if you are a Christian, shape your prayer to God in the face of evil, in the face of injustice, in the face of horror? Let me say that again. How would you shape your prayer to God in the face of evil, injustice, and horror? So two minutes, uh, look at the person next to you that you feel that uh, will give you a great answer. And uh, have a chat on this. Just take two minutes. Um, to talk to the person next to you. How would how should Christians shape our prayer to God in the face of evil, injustice, and horror? Anybody want to give uh, some thoughts? Shoot out some ideas? It's not recorded. <laughs> Close your eyes, everybody, when the person <laughs> gives us. No. Okay. Open today's passage in Psalms one zero nine. How should Christians pray to God in the face of evil, injustice, and horror? Whether it's evil that we read or hear about in the news, or tragically evil or injustice that happens to us or people we know or Christians that we have prayed before. Of course, this question may be totally irrelevant. Because we may well let the news pass. After all, someone once said that the only time most people think about injustice is when it happens to them. So if it doesn't happen to you, well, let's not pray about it. But assuming we don't want to be most people, assuming we are people who do want to pray, who are active people, who are actively praying for others other than ourselves, we are Christians who do want to pray for Christians outside of our comfort zone, who are facing evil, injustice, and horror. Assume we do want to pray in response to evil or injustice that we read or hear or are confronted with that we cannot ignore. How should we pray to God? Do we merely pray for the relief of the sufferings, the sufferers? Could we pray against the evil? Perhaps could we even pray against those who have committed the evil? This afternoon we come to Psalm 109, which sits uneasily for those of us who read or hear it. The psalmist uses some of the harshest words that you do find in prayers, which makes Christians uncomfortable, if not embarrassed. We hear this, David in his own lips says of his enemy, may his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. This is uncomfortable because surely in the Old Testament and even Jesus himself, he commands that you should love your neighbor as yourself. Romans says this in Romans twelve nineteen: Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. As we hear Psalms 109, as we are reminded of some of the passages about for Christians to respond, how should Christians pray to God? How do you and I pray to God in the face of evil, injustice, and horror? So this afternoon in our Psalm series, we come to one of the more difficult passages in the genre of Psalms, 
Um, people often call this an imprecatory psalm. You see, I even try to hard to pronounce it. Imprecation basically means cursing. So imprecatory psalms are those psalms that involve the cursing of the enemies. It's not. It's, it's hard to, when you read this, not just to kind of read it, to try to respond to it, to, well, we don't even know if we could say that we will pray the same as that in the Psalms. Some of us may find it hard emotionally. Perhaps it is right that we should feel hard about it, to even think how we should apply or pray this Psalm. So this afternoon, in a slightly different manner, I'm going to journey with us and engage with this uncomfortable passage or this form of passages, the impactatory passages and psalms. Psalms that we hope, we feel embarrassed to read and we hope that our non-Christian friends don't have to read them and ask us any questions. But they will read and we will have to respond. So let's begin this time by asking God to help us to engage with this psalm uh, as faithfully as we can. Let's pray. Oh dear Heavenly Father, some of the scriptures in the Bible are very hard to read or comprehend. Yet it is your words given to us. So therefore we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us through today's psalm. Help me, Father, to articulate faithfully and clearly this psalm. Help all of us to have a clarity of mind and a softened heart to understand the psalm, to understand its relation to you, to understand how we can even prayerfully understand its implication in our lives. For Christ's glory we pray. Amen. So now open with me Psalms 109. As you look at it, there are three divisions to the passage which you'll find in the bulletin as well. The first division comes from verse 1 to 5. It begins with a crisis that ignites the king's prayer to God. There's a crisis that happens. Verse 6 to 20 describes the king's prayer against his accuser or accusers. And finally, we reach 21 to 31 where he reveals how the king then anchors his whole prayer on God's honor. So let's begin with verse 1, the crisis that ignites the king's prayer to God. Let me read as you listen. Verse 1. My God, whom I praise, do not remain silent. Now the psalm begins with the king praising God, and we'll see at the end, by the time we reach verse 30, that he praised God again. So, it, like many other psalms, this Psalm 109 is bracket to praise God. It's meant to give God the rightful praise. And quickly, from this very first verse, that if you just look at it, you see there's something... Um, that have caused King David to want to pray the rest of today's psalm. His problem, as you look at this, is that King David's biggest trouble, even from verse 1, is not on evil. His biggest trouble is that God is silent. Because there's the contrast. He is praising God, but God, you are silent. And so, he brings out his concern or the crisis that he faced. So look at verse 2 to verse 5, which begins with the word 4. Verse 2. For people, do not be silent, for people are wicked, who are wicked and deceitful 
have opened their mouth against me. They have spoken against me with lying tongues, with words of hatred. They surround me. They attack me without cause. In return for my friendship, they accuse me. So here's the crisis. The wicked, the deceitful characters that are appearing and maliciously speaking against David. And these characters, they are not foreigners from some distance that he can ignore. Rather, they are actually people who are close to David. They are close friends of David. David had treated them with kindness. These friends, so-called, have enjoyed being in the presence of the king. Yet in return for David's kindness, they extend their wickedness on David. So David, confronted by those who he had considered his friends, bring out this crisis to the Lord. In fact, if you read on in verse 4, David, when he faced this evil or this crisis, he doesn't go and think about vengeance straight away. What does he do? He turns to prayer. And this is very much the way David is, isn't it? Let me just give you some examples of how David deals with such issues in other Psalms. In Psalm 69, verse 12 to 13, I think I have it up at the screen. David says this in another Psalm. O Lord, those sitting in the gate talk about me, and I am the song of the drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you. That's the way that David often responds to evil. Now we may ask, what's the context of Psalm 109? And the answer is, actually I don't know. I don't know where it's the context of Psalm 109, where people return David's kindness with hatred. But we do know, as we journey in the Bible and the biography of David, there are many occasions where people have given him evil, exchanging uh, in response to his kindness. Can you think of any? Right at the beginning of David's life, he had King Saul, who was treating him with great evil. King Saul had tried to kill David many times. David who had rescued him from Goliath. David who had gone for battle many times to win the war. David, his son-in-law. David who has um, not treated him with evil. David who had so many times responded with kindness. And Saul wants to kill him. And then we have another guy called Dok, an Edomite. Um, David spared this guy called Dok, but in response to David's kindness, he gave news to King Saul, and King Saul killed all the high priests, because the priests and those at the temple for being kind to David. So painful was David in this response that he recorded this in, in his account. Let me read this account of Dok to us in 1 Samuel 22. Let me just read this to us. It's on screen, I think. 1 Samuel 22, verse 22. He, this guy called Abedar, son of the high priest, he came and told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abedar, that day when Dog the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. So the man who came to speak to David was the man left while his family were all cute for showing kindness to David. So grieved was David that actually Psalm 52 
another psalm was David's story of Edom, uh, of Dog, of his evil and his grief that David had experienced. We could go on with the story. We could have who uh, we could have his own son Absalom, whom he loved, that he wanted to usurp his throne. He, he we could have the account of Ahitophel, his most trusted, wisest advisor, who betrayed him and treated David's kindness with evil to usurp David's throne. We could go on, but as we as we look at David's life, even though we do not know the context of 109, the first thing we know is David is familiar with betrayal. David is familiar with those that he has treated kindly who will respond with wickedness. And now as we continue back, as we look back to 109, we begin to step into the very acute prayer by David as he speaks against his enemies. Now, as, you, as we read on, we need to recognize something very important about David that we are not. And we need to have this kept on before we carry on reading. And it is that David is a king chosen by God. David was chosen as God's king before he even met Saul. And David was given the eternal promise as the king while he was at his pinnacle, at the heights of his uh, success. So David as a king, the success, the prosperity, the, the blessings of the people of God all hinges on David. If David is well, all of God's people will be well. If David is not well, so will the people. So, so important was this, that uh, as we read this, we need to recognize that God's blessing will always come through God's king. God's blessing will not come through King Saul. God's blessing will not come to the world through King Absalom. God's promise and blessings will only come through King David and the son of King David. So with that as a background, this is where I read on as David cried out from verse 6 onwards. Look at verse 6 with me. Appoint someone evil to oppose my enemy. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he's tried, let him be found guilty. And may his prayers condemn him. May his days be few. May another take his place of leadership. So here David appeals to God, God, do not be silent. He does not desire anyone else to take vengeance for him, not even himself, but he says, God, do not be silent. Speak up. Intervene. Be the one to execute judgment for your king. So this is David's prayer. God, let my enemies experience what he has been to me. Let an, an evil person kind of oppose him such that he has nothing else to say because what he sees, the person who's opposing him, looks just like him. How do you complain uh, of injustice when the person who does injustice to you is the same as how you would have done to your friends? And David cried, put him on trial, another accuser accused him. In fact, as he prays, let the words that come out from his mouth reveal that he's a guilty man. Let it be so, God. And now, in fact, remove him from leadership. Now, there is something important here as we kind of examine that. As David prays this, when someone who is his enemy is in leadership, it means that David is not secure. As long as there are enemies amongst David's leaders, David is not standing and leading in peace. 
So his call is that God, there is no peace until you remove the enemies of your king from leaderships and leadership role. So with this background, we take a step back and start to look again at Psalm 109. That it is not a personal prayer. And it should not be a personal prayer that we can just use to evoke on someone that we don't like. God, do that to him. Just as he did to David's enemies, do the same for my enemies. This is actually a prayer by the king to remove those who opposes kingship given by God and hinders the blessings of God. So it's important to note David is not plotting evil in his heart. He's not appealing for personal vengeance. Rather, he's presenting his case before God as one who knows that God knows everything. So he would not, as David, David would not dare to implore God to do injustice. He would not dare to present a case to God whereby God will find David guilty. So David dares only to present his case to God in the sight of the consequence on the kingship that God has placed on him. So here is a caution for us as we read imprecatory prayers or passages not to be too quick to read the passage and apply into our own lives. Uh, that, that's a danger that sometimes when someone reads the Bible, they just read and say, ah, okay, I'm going to use this. Whether it's a blessing or a curse, they'll just pick it up. And here in this prayer, uh, it's important for us to say, hold the horses and go look at it through who is saying it, that we may say it rightly when it's our turn to respond. So there we have it in David's prayer. In, in, in fact, the historical narrative of 1 and 2 Samuel, if, if we've been following David's life which in our church, we have been following for quite a while, we see that actually David is a man of long-suffering. You don't see him dealing with Saul the way that he would have done in this psalm. You didn't see him wanting to take vengeance on Saul's family. He has his grandson sitting at his table. You don't see him laughing his heart out when Absalom was killed. He cried his heart so loudly that his soldiers almost left him. David's a man of long suffering and is not very similar to this psalm in some way. But here he is speaking as the king and he holds the blessing and the covenant God has. And so this is where we come to verse 9 to 15, the chilling description of vengeance upon his enemies, children, family, wife, a very stark contrast to many a times how David treats his enemies. But let me read this for us as you look at it with me. Verse 9, May his children be fatherless and his widow, his wife a widow. Well, that would be obvious if the enemy is killed. But he goes on, May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off, their names blotted out from the next generation. It's pretty chilling as we kind of read David saying this. And if you look carefully at this psalm, verse 13 kind of summarizes what he is actually calling for from verse 9 to 13. 
He's calling forth that those who are born of his enemies to be removed. There needs to be an end to the evil against the throne given by God. Now, is, is David speaking with bitter vengeance? Because some commentators say that, yeah, he is, and it's kind of he just lost his mind a little bit. Is David speaking out of bitter vengeance? Or is David appealing, making this appalling appeal for God to stop, in fact, completely stop evil from carrying on? I think it's the later, and this is where I, will, I want to quote um, Christopher Ash when he tried to wrestle with this um, verses from 9 to 15. Let me, let me quote him. It's, it's a long quote, so I put it there on the screen for us. But let me, let me read this for us. Christopher said this, We tend to think David is being vindicate, vindictive, meaning spiteful. But we need to consider this. Men and women are not free-floating individuals. He goes on, On the contrary, we are creatures shaped by our families and our culture. And our default convictions are the background beliefs and behavior of our culture and family. So unless something wonderful happens to break us out of this corporate solidarities, we will behave as our fathers did. He goes on, It is possible, wonderfully possible, that someone may repent and live the generation in which they were born and nurture. You know, as Ruth the Moabitess so wonderfully did. But in so doing, when Ruth did what she did, she ceased in her heart to be a true Moabite and she was grafted into Israel. So King David, he says, prays against the family of this traitor because the normal and the natural expectation is that his family will share his nature. And as long as they do, the earth will never be a safe place. So it's, it's an extended portion, but he's, he's thinking carefully what is going on. And I think Christopher made a really helpful point here, that the children, children are meant to be like their fathers. That's what children are meant to be, to be faithful along to their families. Now we know this it, it, this modeling in, in so much culture when, when you have a, a son and a daughter who, who, who is like the father, whether being uh, good or bad, lazy or exceptionally intelligent, we say, ah, it's a chip off of the old block. Or it's just like his dad. Or yeah, just like his mom. Do, do you hear that? Do we say that? Say, ah, he looks like his mom or looks like... His dad. But on the other hand, if the person does not behave the same way as the family, perhaps he chose not to take up certain rituals in his life, people will look at this person and say, it's the black sheep of the family. Who is going to do these rituals after we die? I don't have this as my son. Although you realize that even in many cultures, when the son or the daughter moves out of the culture or the practice of the family, they are kind of looked as someone who has betrayed the family. So there we have it. That, in fact, someone once says this, blood, blood makes you related, but loyalty makes you family. Can we say that? Someone says this, and I think it works in a lot of places. Blood makes you related, but it's loyalty that makes you family. So what we have here, as we look at this passage, is that if the children of the accusers, 
if they do not behave like their father, if they do not take vengeance for their father, if they do not look at David as enemy of their father, they are not like their father. They have become a betrayer of whom their father represents. So what is said of Ruth the Moabite in the book of Ruth can be said in a lot of circumstances. In Rahab, the prostitute in, in, in Jericho who gave her allegiance to Israel instead of the king of Jericho and she was brought in to Israel as part of Israel. Now David does not want to end here as we come back to Psalm 108 but he wants to give more reason why he says what he says and why God needs to do what he calls God to do. And so we look on, as we look on to verse 16, where the evil of the enemies are more than skin deep. Let me read verse 16. For he, David's enemy, never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come back to him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it be far from him. The enemy's thoughts are filled with evil and with harm and as they curse uh, God's king, it's almost like a second garment to him. It's like second skin, verse 18. The cursing is like his garment. His hatred for David is like the fuel for his life. It's like the water and the oil that makes him alive by going against David. That's why David appeals to God, God, do not be silent. Stop those who despise you when they despise your king. And that's where he says in verse 20, May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. So when David brought out his appeal against his enemy, he turns the anchor now right onto God's honor and God's character. He appeals on God for who he is and for what he has given to David. After all, David didn't ask to be a king. He was a shepherd. But God said, you're going to be a king. And say, David says, I'm going to be a king. David didn't ask for eternal lineage, but God says, and I'll give you an eternal house. And David says, oh Lord, may you give me the eternal house. So David is saying, God, do not be silent. But speak out. So verse 21, as he anchors on God's honor. Look at verse 21. With me, but you, sovereign Lord, help me for your name's sake. Out of the goodness of your love, deliver me. Now, after all this appalling appeal for justice, he connects his situation, his predicament, uh, with God's name and then God's character. Now, if for a moment we think, kind of, well, David is just kind of use some um, ways or words to kind of God, ask God to uh, do the evil acts, I think we are totally wrong because David does know God. The Bible says we believe he's one after God's own heart and he knows that God sets wrong things right. So he's asking God, God, the time is now speak up for your king because my kingship is fused with your promises. Now David, who had been the center of the scorn and ridicule, he goes on to describe his physical, his mental, his emotional states from verse 22 to 25. He is not in a good state. And then he appeals to God's unfailing covenantal love. You know, after, it was, after all, it was God, God who put him there. And God who says, you stay there as my king. And because God is the one who puts David on the throne, 
He's not asking for vengeance. He's asking God to reveal Himself and bring His own honor to His name. And so He says, verse 26, 27, Help me, Lord my God. Save me according to Your unfailing love. Let them know that it is Your hand that You, Lord, have done it. And how does David end off his whole psalm? He ends off this way with praise. Let me read verse 30 for us. 31 as well. When my mouth, with my mouth I will greatly exalt the Lord. In the great throng of worshippers I will praise Him, for He stands at the right hand of the needy. Now, David was the needy as with His people. And God is there to save their lives from those who would condemn them. So when God vindicates His own honor, we will finally see who God is. That's what David wants. God, when you vindicate yourself, it's not asking other people, when you vindicate yourself, we will see the kind of God you are. You're the God who stands with the needy. You're the God who remembers your people. And so we have, dear friends, as we kind of journey through Psalm 109, it's a bit different from usual because it's hard for me to bring you in as if this is our, yours or my psalm. But I want that we have journeyed together to go the psalm, go through one Psalm 109 with David. And then we look and see how does that actually work for us. In fact, before we can do that, we have to ask, who can actually pray this prayer? Is this just all about King David? And our New Testament, our New Testament will tell us, no, isn't it? There is a greater king who will sing Psalm 109 perfectly. He's the one that David has, in a sense, prayed eschatologically, meaning as he prayed for himself, he's actually praying for someone who will face all this and who will have the rights to say all this. So the impactory passages like Psalm 109 is ultimately linked to a king, God's king, and to the enemies, God's enemy. And so as we think Jesus, as we come to the New Testament, Jesus the king, he's ultimately the one who can see who are his enemies, who can pray this prayer, because the, those who goes against Jesus literally is going against God. Jesus, the one who is perfect in his words, perfect in his love, perfect in his care, perfect in his humanity, perfect in his representation for God. Then when the person goes against Christ or against Jesus, that they are going against the God himself. So it's only Jesus who can pray Psalm 109 perfectly because in a sense, look at this. He's the only one who would have been able to differentiate between that so-called evil Saul of Tarsus and the Pharisees who have been following him, calling him Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi. He's the only one who can differentiate who is his real enemy and who is not. He's the only one with his 12 disciples could differentiate the one who has denied him three times. He will be the one who carries the gospel. And the one trusted with the money to give to the poor who represents the, the compassion of Jesus, he's the one who's going to sell Jesus for 30 silver coins. Because he's the only perfect one who can, when he says to his enemy that you are my enemy, that is true. So Jesus is the only one who can say this. And let me read this to you, what Jesus says. Because he has condemned people in his time before they were dead. He says this in, 
in Matthew 23, 33, after seven wolves about the Pharisees, he says to this Pharisee, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how do you think you can escape the condemnation of hell? Jesus is the only one who can and dare and is able to accurately say this, um, and we can't. And so it's this impeccatory prayer. And and when we come to the New Testament, that's where the Apostle Peter picks up Psalm 109, where he begins his gospel ministry. In fact, as as we come to Acts chapter 2, as the apostles begin to go out, Peter looked, there are only 11 of us, but there should be 12. And let me read, he says, from Psalms 109. And this is what Peter said when he quotes um, David in Acts 1 verse 20. He says this, For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So Paul, uh, Peter literally pulls the impactory prayer of Psalms 109 to speak about Judas Iscariot, the close friend of, Dave, of, of King Jesus, and Jesus in dealing with his enemies. So now as we come to Psalms 109 and we come to Jesus, the question comes finally back to us, how then do we respond uh, to Psalm 109? How do we deal with Psalm 109? Can we pray Psalm 109? I think in some sense we are called to pray all the Psalms. We don't choose which Psalm is relevant and which Psalm is not. But the question is how is it relevant? And that's where we come finally to, to the last portion where I want to help us to think as the people, the king's people, pray with the king. As the people of Jesus prays with King Jesus himself. And that's where we look at uh, the application for us finally. There are two ways, there are two things that I want us to kind of consider as we look at the application. One is the necessary recognitions that we need to have as we look at a psalm like 109. And second, the appropriate prayer that should come out from our mouth when we pray. So two things, the necessary recognitions as we deal with a psalm like that and the appropriate prayer when we pray to God. So the first, as we think about recognition, I've got just three small little points for us. The first is that we need to recognize right from the beginning of psalms, there are two cosmic categories of people. They are the wicked and they are the righteous. Right from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. The wicked are those who are not with the king. The righteous are those who are with the king. We need to know there's real people who are considered wicked even in the Bible. Secondly, because they are righteous and wicked, when it comes to this impactory passage such as Psalm 109, we need to recognize the key it's not the shocking words that we read about the child, about the house, about the debtors. The key is not to look at the shocking curses, but the rightful call for God to oppose the enemies of His King and of His blessings. So a vindic- uh, impactory passage like this, or a prayer like this, is a call for God to respond to vindicate himself, to vindicate his king. Now, the last recognition we have is because we are not King David, because we are not King Jesus, 
we need to be we need to recognize that a prayer like this can never be prayed apart from the king so a, a prayer like an impeccatory prayer of curses we can never pray it without being with the king that means we can never pray a prayer like this without the mentioning of Jesus so there, there we have it. These are three recognitions as we look at it. Now to come to really how do we then pray. We come back to our question that we're beginning. How do we pray and how do we shape our prayer when we pray and see those who are suffering injustice, evil and horror, especially Christians? I think there's one thing, the first thing we need to see is that we do need to pray. We need to pray when evil uh, comes upon those who are God's people. We need to see and pray to God that those who are suffering, those who belong to Jesus, we need to recognize who God is because David recognized that God is one with unfailing love because that's how he ends his prayer, to recognize God is the one who is standing with the needy, with his people, with those who have condemned his people, uh, he will respond. So the first thing is we do need to pray. We do need to pray um, when we see suffering, especially those who are Christians for Christ. Secondly, there is a place for us to pray for the justice of God to take His course. Second, we need to pray because there is a place where the God's justice should take its course. Meaning that we are to pray when there's injustice and acts of evil that dishonors God and who dishonors Christ, God's King. But we just should be careful not to be too quick to condemn any particular people because we just do not know completely whether he is Judas Iscariot or Simon Peter. We just do not know perfectly if he is that vengeance or that bloodthirsty Saul of Tarsus, our Apostle Paul, or that nice and well-speaking uh, Pharisees who have been following Jesus for two, three and a half years. So we need to leave room for God uh, to bring His justice. But we must pray, and there is a place for us to pray that God's justice will take its course when it dishonors God's name. But finally, there is a place, and that's where our New Testament and the rest of what we believe as Christian comes in. There is a place for us to pray that even those who do evil will quickly repent before it's too late. There is a place for us to pray on that. Well, one thing to be sure, we should never be naive that evil and sin can go really, really wrong. I don't think we want to be naive, but we have a place where we can pray because we are not Jesus there is a place for us to pray that even those who are evil, who are sinning, will repent before God's justice will ultimately come. Because it will come. So we can pray that they will turn before it lands on them. Well, Christopher Ash quoted Abraham Lincoln. I, I really like this. So I even put Abraham Lincoln's photo there. He says this. It was an amazing quote. He says this, Lincoln says this, Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Meaning, from a Christian perspective, would not God's enemies be destroyed if they quickly repent 
and cut themselves off from the evil generations that they are in. So let me close this passage of Psalm 109 with the words of Peter as he speaks to the Jews who have taken part in the death, the evil of killing Jesus. This is what Peter said to them, Acts 2.36. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their hearts and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter, with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourself from this evil, from this corrupt generation. Save yourself before God's rightful justice will land. And it will. Let me just pray for us. And in fact, pray with me as we pray to God. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray and ask for your mercy to be revealed to those who have been suffering evil, especially our brothers and sisters, our Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith. Father, we read about Christians who, are, who have lost spouse, who face daily threats, persecutions. Read this whenever we flip to Open Doors, Barnabas Funds, Joshua Project, or those organizations that brings the suffering up to light so that we can pray. Father, we pray that you will hear the prayers of your people, of us, and come to their aid. We pray for healing to the weary and brokenhearted. Pray for provisions for the hungry and the desperate. Father, we pray you will intervene the works of evil that seeks to harm your people. We pray too, Father, that you will ultimately bring an end to evil that raises its feast against you, Yet we also pray that there will be those who are hating Christians at this moment who will repent and come to our Lord Jesus. Just like us, they will repent of their sin, that will leave this evil generation and come for your forgiveness. We pray there will be some who will put to death their rebellion before it is too late. So Father, as we continue to pray for your name to be glorified, as we wait for King Jesus to have all his enemies under his feet, we want to lift our praise to you as David did. For on that final day, all the poor in heart, all who comes to you, will be lifted up from their sorrows. You will indeed reveal yourself as one who saves your people from those who are condemned for Jesus' sake. For your glory and in Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.